Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. Hi, this is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we're talking about KRAS, specifically advanced non-small cell lung cancer with a KRAS G12C mutation. Now, to help us better understand what these mutations mean, I am joined by two thoracic medical oncologists, both renowned experts in the field, very productive. Um, it doesn't get better than these two. First, Dr. Melissa Johnson, the Program Director of Lung Cancer Research at the Sarah Cannon Research Institute. Melissa, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Stephen, for having me. Thrilled to be here. And we're also joined by Dr. Ferdinando Scalitas, an associate professor at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Nandos, thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for the invitation. An absolute pleasure to be joining this team. So let, let's jump right in. You know, we've learned over the past decade that biomarker testing can reveal very important actionable targets, and these guide the treatment of advanced lung cancer right from the jump. Now, some of these targets like ROS1, RET fusions, NTRAC fusions, some of these are really rare. Nandos, can you comment on the prevalence of KRAS mutations? Absolutely. So contrary to these uh, rather rare uh, and less prevalent alterations, mutations, activating mutations in KRAS represent the most prevalent oncogenic driver event in non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. So if we look across the totality of non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, we find activating mutations in KRAS in approximately 25 to 30 percent, so between a quarter and a third of all cases. And about uh, 41 to 45 percent, depending on different studies of these KRAS alterations, are going to be KRAS G12C um, alteration. So taken together overall, uh, the KRAS G12C mutation is found in approximately 14% or one in seven of all non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. So pretty prevalent. Yeah. So really an important topic, um, something that really affects anyone involved in the treatment of lung cancer. Melissa, off study, not on any clinical trials today, when you don't have any other genomic information, how do you treat KRAS G12C non-small cell lung cancer in the first-line setting? Well, this is a little bit of an anticlimactic answer, Stephen, because, of course, we treat KRAS G12C non-small cell lung cancer in the front line like uh, other wild-type non-small cell lung cancer patients. So they'll get immunotherapy with or without chemotherapy. And so we do have targeted therapy agents that are available, but these are not things you're using in the frontline setting today. Am I understanding right, Melissa? That's right. I think within the next couple years, that answer will probably change. But today, in early 2023, we're treating those patients in uh, the same as we do other driver-negative patients. And immunotherapy, as you mentioned, really is our, our, our cornerstone of, of therapy for patients with driver-negative lung cancer. Uh, Nandos, when we do KRAS testing, especially if we're doing it as part of next-gen sequencing, a lot of times we'll find other mutations, other co-mutations. Those are a little more prevalent in, in KRAS lung cancers. We're talking about mutations in genes like STK11, KEEP1. You presented some eye-opening retrospective work on their significance a few years ago. Can you explain to the audience what these mutations are and how they influence your treatment decisions? 
Absolutely. So um, both STK11 and KEEP1 are tumor suppressor genes and inactivating mutations in them are found quite frequently in non-small cell lung cancer and particularly in the context of KRAS mutations. So approximately one third of all KRAS mutant tumors will have a mutation in either a commutation in either STK11 or KEEP1. Why is this important? This is important because uh, mutations in STK11 and KEEP1 have been associated with a non-T-cell inflamed or adverse, if you want, tumor immune microenvironment. And work that we initially presented in uh, 2018 um, suggested that mutations in STK11 in particular are associated with poor clinical outcomes with PD-1 uh, inhibitor monotherapy, either nivolumab or pembrolizumab. More recently, we also reported, we and others also reported that these mutations, mutations in STK11 and KEEP, are also associated with worse clinical outcomes with uh, chemoimmunotherapy, either the pemetrexid carboplatin pembrolizumab, the Kino189 uh, regimen, uh, as well as um, the Empower uh, 150 regimen. And these results have subsequently been confirmed in the context of the randomized uh, phase three clinical trial. So taken together, what's the conclusion? The conclusion is that tumors with STK11 or KEEP1 mutations may derive less benefit from uh, the addition of a PD-1 or PDL one inhibitor. So for me, the big question is, what's the optimal first-line approach for these uh, patients? So, so over the past year, we have seen really exciting data from the Poseidon and 9LA randomized phase three clinical trials, a subgroup analysis from these studies that suggested that patients with STK11 or KEEP1 mutations might actually selectively benefit from the incorporation of anti-CTLA-4 to a chemoimmunotherapy backbone. So uh, over the past year, I have been using the 9LA regimen uh, to treat these patients and following the FDA approval of Poseidon uh, in last November, I'm now using Poseidon to treat these patients. Hmm. So, you know, when you first presented these data, sort of showing the pretty convincingly there was less benefit from immunotherapy, we really kind of didn't know what to do at the time. Uh, it didn't seem like enough to withhold immunotherapy, but it seemed very clear they weren't getting as much benefit. And then you referenced some recent data. Now, Melissa, you presented those Poseidon data, um, reporting outcomes in this subset specifically. Can you explain to listeners sort of in your own words what you saw and why that might be important? Yeah, that's right, Stephen. Um, just in brief, the Poseidon trial uh, enrolled patients newly diagnosed. Patients were randomized to received dervalumab PDL1 inhibitor plus trimolimumab CTLA4 inhibitor plus chemotherapy versus dervalumab chemo versus chemo alone. It's unique in that it's the one large randomized trial that compares all three of those regimens, not just PDL1 chemo versus chemo or CTLA4 PD1 versus chemo. So that's interesting. And in the trial, patients received a limited course of tremorlumumab, five doses. They received dervalumab until, until progression or uh, toxicity. And so it evaluated the question at induction chemotherapy and a limited course of tremorlumumab, which is how uh, this regimen is a little different from Checkmate 9LA, for example. So uh, in the four-year updated analysis, we looked at... Uh, a molecular, uh, uh, molecularly hard to treat patients, including the STK11 and the KEEP1 mutations that Nando's referred to. Also, KRAS uh, mutations were included. And in every case, the patients that received derva tremi chemo did better 
when they uh, then patients that receive derva chemo or chemotherapy alone. Now, this was a retrospective analysis. It was small numbers in the group of 600 patients uh, that were evaluable. There were uh, 40 with KEEP1 alterations and uh, maybe 80 with SDK11 mutations. Nevertheless, it does suggest to us that in these difficult to treat populations in which PD-1 or PDL one plus chemotherapy regimens bring less benefit, the addition of tremilumumab, in this case is CTLA-4, may be enough to rev up the tumor, may be enough to make a cold tumor hot. While there's a lot of caveats and a lot of criticism, it is now, uh, it, I think the positive step forward that we take as a field from Poseidon is increasing awareness that we should be looking at these patients a little differently. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, there really is a clear biologic difference. And, you know, immunotherapy is still our frontline standard of care, but we now have two regimens that include CTLA-4, and maybe that should be a consideration going forward. You know, once we get past immunotherapy, now there are some patients that will do really well with immunotherapy, long-term durable response, but that's not everybody. And some patients will need to consider different therapies. We now have two FDA-approved KRAS G12C inhibitors for consideration there. Um, the first agent approved was Sotoracid. Uh, Nandos, you were involved in some of those early pivotal trials. Can you explain to the listeners, you know, how does Sotoracid work and maybe a little bit about what you saw in that Codebreak 100 study? Sure. So Sotoracid is an inactive state selective covalent inhibitor of KRAS G12C. It binds irreversibly covalently to the cysteine at position 12, and it occupies an induced pocket known as the switch to pocket only when KRAS G12C is in its inactive conformation. In other words, is bound to GDP rather than GTP. So drug binding, sotoracid binding to this pocket locks KRAS G12C in this inactive state that thus preventing interaction with downstream effectors and therefore shutting down KRAS-driven oncogenic signaling. So Codebreak 100 was um, a global phase one, two registration enabling study that assessed sotoracid monotherapy in patients with advanced um, KRAS G12C mutated non-small cell lung cancer that had failed at least one line between one and three prior lines uh, of standard systemic therapy. So in the phase two component of the study that I had the privilege uh, to be involved in, treatment with Sotoracib resulted in a 37% objective response rate with a median progression-free survival of 6.8 months and a median overall survival of 12.5 months. Importantly, responses to sotoracib were durable. 11.1 months was the median duration of response that was reported. And in a recent two-year update from the from emerged cohort from the phase one and two components of Codebreak 100, the two-year overall survival uh, was uh, with sotoracib was 32.5%. So this suggests that a significant fraction of patients derive long-term benefit uh, from sotoracib. Pretty important results. These, as we know, led to accelerated approval by the US FDA and I think very rapid adoption in the US. As you mentioned at the jump, uh, this is a common mutation. It's something where we often need newer therapies and we definitely would prefer this to, to some of our prior options at the time. But then we saw the results of a randomized phase three trial at ESMO, Codebreak 200. Now in that study, second line sotoracid was compared to docetaxel chemotherapy 
in KRAS G12C non-small cell lung cancer. Melissa, you also delivered these results at ESMO. Um, do you think you can summarize the, the results for us? Sure. Stephen, this was, as you said, a, a randomized phase three trial. And so uh, the primary endpoint of the trial uh, was progression-free survival, and there was a statistically significant improvement for patients treated with oral sotorasib over IV docetaxel, hazard ratio of 0.66, and so a 34% reduction in risk of progression for patients treated with the experimental sotorasib over standard of care IV chemotherapy. There were a number of other sub, uh, secondary endpoints that were also positive in favor of sotorasib um, over docetaxel, including time to response, objective response, and duration of response. And importantly, uh, safety also was favorable for patients treated with sotorasib as compared to docetaxel. Um, the most common adverse events diarrhea and elevated liver enzymes happened in a smaller percentage of patients, where docetaxel has a side effect profile that we're very familiar with and have come to, uh, to not like uh, because neutropenia, febrile neutropenia, fatigue, and alopecia uh, cause significant uh, decreases in patients' quality of life. A very important secondary endpoint in this trial, likewise, was patient-reported outcomes. And here again, patients who were treated with sotorasib had longer time to deterioration of symptoms and quality of life and improvement in global uh, health functioning with sotorasib versus docetaxel. So for all intents and purposes, Sotorasib was looking uh, better than docetaxel, and these were the results that we were expecting. Now, there was one uh, other secondary endpoint uh, that was a wrinkle in this trial result, and that was, of course, overall survival. Patients treated with sotorasib and patients treated with docetaxel had uh, identical overall survival with a hazard ratio of 1, p-value of 0.5. So there was no improvement for patients treated uh, with the experiment in the experimental arm. There are a lot of reasons for this. About 34% of patients treated in this intent to treat uh, trial who were randomized to receive docetaxel went on to receive sotorasib at progression. And probably another 12% who randomized to docetaxel from the outset uh, declined to participate in the trial and presumably went on to receive other oral KRES G12C inhibitors outside of the trial. Another explanation is that halfway through the trial, because of the exciting results of the Codebreak 100 trial that Nando's uh, summarized, the FDA asked that the trial be cut in half in terms of sample size. And so Really, the, this trial lost its ability to look at the secondary endpoint with any statistical significance. So because of this, um, some point to that, point to Cobrake 200 and say it's, it's not good enough, it doesn't show overall survival. Yet, if we step back and look at the totality of this data, it would suggest that patients that are treated with sotorasib tolerate therapy better, remain progression-free for longer, and with better quality of life. And as our therapy options become more and more sophisticated, showing overall survival may be a larger and, uh, and more difficult bar to reach. And so I think we'll, 
will say that sotorasib, in my opinion, is now the standard of care and the second line for patients with KRSG12C uh, mutations, but there are many others being investigated. And so we'll have to stay tuned to figure out which one is best. I think those are a lot of really important points. And, you know, admit when I saw the survival curves, I, I was hoping for something a little more. It was, as you mentioned, underpowered for survival. And with crossover being what it was, um, I, I didn't necessarily expect a big difference, but I was maybe hoping for a trend. Uh, still, I think the, the points you, you brought up are pretty valid. And it's not just a matter of the adverse events in the PFS. I think that there's something to be said for being allowed to take an oral therapy that is probably better tolerated, that not coming in every three weeks for an infusion sort of makes you feel maybe a little bit less like a patient, a little less risk involved. And so I take it that the results of, of Codebreak 200 did not change your practice off study, Melissa? That's right, because I was prescribing sotorasib before and will continue to do so after uh, one line of platinum and immunotherapy in my KRES G12C patients. Yeah, agreed. We didn't really change our practice either. Um, Fernandos, what about you? How was your, you know, what was your impression of the Codebreak 200 results? For me, um, the most important take-home message, and I'm going to echo largely what uh, Melissa said, was that this was a positive study. This study met its primary endpoint and demonstrated superiority of sotorasib overdose ataxel for progression-free survival and as well as objective response rate. And it's particularly noteworthy that this improvement in PFS was coupled with improved patient-reported uh, outcomes, which coupled with the feasibility, as you mentioned, as, as Stephen is really the, the take-home message. I think it's important to note that patients benefited across all the pre-specified subsets, including patients with previously treated CNS disease, which is an important consideration. And obviously, uh, as we know, and, and as has been shown from uh, not just Codebreak 200, but Codebreak 100, as well as several other clinical trials of KRSG12C inhibitors, not all patients will benefit to the same extent uh, from, from a KRSG12C inhibitor, there is significant uh, heterogeneity. And I think one of the important uh, scientific and clinical questions for the foreseeable uh, future is to try to identify molecular determinants of distinct clinical outcomes with KRSG12C inhibitors. Which patients have these long-term, uh, long-lasting uh, responses where monotherapy might be sufficient compared to patients with a more aggressive clinical course where perhaps treatment intensification with combinations may represent the future way forward. Yeah, important point. You know, when we look at these response rates, just a, a shade below or around 40%, I think it tells us that compared to EGFR, compared to ALK, you know, maybe we need to enrich that population a little more, really showing a lot of challenges. I'm glad that this is an option for our patients. I wanted survival to be to be more impressive, but I'm glad that it's there and available for our use. I know it's not available worldwide, and we'll have to see how other regulatory authorities view these data. But an important point that you brought up, Melissa, was, was tolerability in the study. You saw some diarrhea. We saw some lab abnormalities. Off study, what's been your clinical experience with this drug with regard to tolerability? Stephen, it's a it's a well-tolerated drug when the comparator makes you lose your hair, makes you nauseous and fatigued for three weeks, and as you said, have, have to come to the doctor for an infusion. And usually my patients that get docetaxel then come back a week later for IV fluids because they're dehydrated. Having said all of that, it, I, you know, practically all oral drugs have some sort of GI side effects. And, the, and you know, Tegriso may be 
um, an exception for some osimertinib, I should say, but I found that patients have nausea, but it's tolerable and manageable. Uh, diarrhea, likewise, tolerable and manageable. You know, that about 20% of patients, we saw mild uh, grade one bumps in creatinine and grade one bumps in transaminases that were not clinically apparent. We just found them because we were looking. So for this recalcitrant mutation and the, and the oncogene-driven cancers that it causes, I found the tolerability of sotorasib to be outstanding. Let's move on. Uh, you know, in 2022, we saw a second KRSG12C inhibitor gain accelerated approval uh, at Agrasib. And Melissa, you were involved in these trials as well. Is there a, a noticeable difference between Adagrasib and Sotorasib? One practical difference, Stephen, is that Adagrasib is twice a day and Sotorasib is once a day. And again, these oral agents, you know, they um, sometimes determine uh, that you need to take other drugs at the other end of the day, uh, PPIs, for example. And so sequencing that in can be logistically a little bit more challenging. Adagrasib has, uh, and and its sponsor, Marathi, have been uh, fairly aggressive about uh, showing their phase one data, both in combination with other drugs like cetuximab, but also in patients with untreated brain mets. There was a cohort in their phase one uh, umbrella trial uh, for patients whose brain mets were untreated, and about 30% of the time, these untreated brain metastasis had response to adagrasib. So we, we still await that equivalent data from uh, sotorasib and Amgen. As Nando uh, noted, the patients in Cobra 200 did seem to do well if they had ba- brain metastasis, but that, you know, that's a little bit of an apples to oranges comparison. I think these drugs are very similar. Nandos, any, anything to add there? Do you think these drugs are relatively interchangeable? And, and if not, how do you choose one over the other? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think uh, the first point to note is that, you know, broadly speaking, taking the totality of the data into consideration, the single agent efficacy of both Sotorasim and Aggressive, as reported in Codebrick 100 and Crystal 1, uh, are remarkably similar. I mean, the median overall survival was 12.5 versus 12.6 months. The objective response rate, you know, 37 versus 43 so really nothing, not much separating them in terms of overall efficacy. However, uh, one can perhaps, uh, uh, you know, make a couple of points, a couple of points to consider when trying to decide between, now, between two now FDA approved uh, drugs for an individual patient. And of course, we should acknowledge that these are considerations that may evolve as we get more data or more real world experience for these uh, um, uh, drugs. But and aggressive um, from, from the data that I have been presented at a dose of 600 uh, milligrams twice daily seems to be associated with a somewhat higher rate of GI adverse events, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, although these are uh, in the majority of cases low grade and easily managed with uh, um, a dose uh, um, modification or withholding it. So perhaps for a patient with a more marginal performance status uh, or someone with a history of GI adverse events, or, or, or comorbid conditions that might predispose to GI adverse events, I might be more inclined uh, to favor sotorasib. Also, there is a note on the label for sotorasib that it can, of adagrasib, that it can cause prolongation of the QTC. And therefore, before starting adagrasib, um, um, I think that the recommendation is to obtain an EKG and monitor for changes in the QTC while on treatment. So perhaps 
patients that have a, a history of heart conditions that might result in a prolonged uh, QTC or are taking concomitant medications that might result in prolongation of the QTC interval. Uh, that might be a scenario where, again, I might favor sotorasib. On the other hand, as Melissa mentioned, there is more robust data uh, presented regarding the intracranial activity of adagrasib in patients specifically with untreated brain metastasis, where adagrasib uh, was reported to have a 32% intracranial response rate. So in cases where there is there are untreated brain metastases and there is concern for interval CNS disease progression, that might be a scenario uh, where one might consider favoring uh, adagrasib. But more, more remains to be learned as we get more experience about how these drugs combine with other standard of care therapies and, and as we get more experience using them in everyday clinical practice. Yeah, I, I agree. It's good to have multiple options and we'll continue to learn more. And there are other G12C inhibitors on the way probably. Nandos, at ESMO IO 2022, we saw some interesting data that combined this G12C inhibitor adagrasib and immunotherapy. Now, we'd seen previous uh, results with sotorasib combinations. My first question has to do with the rationale here, you know, Nandos, why would we want to combine these targeted drugs with checkpoint inhibitors? Yes, that's an excellent question. There is very strong preclinical and cons uh, rationale for combining um, KRAS inhibitors, direct KRAS inhibitors with immunotherapy. So um, extensive work in, in preclinical models, as well as more limited work in clinical specimens, has suggested that KRAS G12C inhibitors can inflame uh, the tumor immune microenvironment, so can result in um, increased density of um, effector in immune cell populations in response to treatment that might immune sensitize a, a, a cold tumor uh, to, um, to immunotherapy. It's for me the most impressive preclinical data is that the efficacy of, of KRAS G12C inhibitors is significantly enhanced in the context of immune competent mouse models compared to immune deficient mouse models. So when we treat a subcutaneous tumor, a KRAS G12C mutant colorectal or lung cancer, in an immune deficient model, you achieve an initial response, but subsequently the tumor almost always grows back. When you repeat the same experiment using the same cell line, but in the context of an immune competent model, that's when you start to see the long-term responses, the immunological, uh, what you would call a cure in a mouse. So this suggests that part of the anti-tumor efficacy of KRAS G12C inhibitors is mediated by the immune system and both the innate and the adaptive branches of the immune system. So that's very strong rationale for seeking to exploit this immune sensitizing effect of KRAS G12C inhibitors by combining them with inhibitors of the PD-1, uh, PD-L1 um, uh, axis. You know, this intersection between targeted therapy and immunotherapy is so fascinating from an efficacy standpoint, but also from a toxicity standpoint. And we know in other targets like EGFR, ALK, that giving these drugs together or even giving them the wrong sequence can be a little dangerous. Melissa, we know that prior immunotherapy influences the toxicity of EGFR inhibitors and ALK inhibitors and RET inhibitors. Do you think IO influences the toxicity of KRAS G12C inhibitors? Stephen, that's a good question. I think we're... We're seeing that it does uh, in some of the, the data that is in the public arena. We've heard that it is combinable and that we can give them together, uh, like the, uh, the data shared at ESMO-IO without aggressive um, and immunotherapy. But 
there's other data from uh, from Amgen using sotoracib in immunotherapy that suggested that sequential use or phasing in one or the other was a more tolerable way to give these drugs. So I, I think we're still learning. From what's in the public domain currently, it would appear that that we can do it, but then, then, then there's also been some reported toxicity. So I don't think we have the final answer yet. It makes sense to me though, given our experience with EGFR and ALK inhibitors, that we should be mindful of it. And even looking at actually at the code break 200 data, where we had uh, you know 20% transaminase elevation, and all of those patients had 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 been previously treated with immune therapy. One question uh, that still remains unanswered that I, I think Amgen and Amgen scientists are reviewing is whether or not some of that might be uh, mediated by overlapping toxicity. Yeah, it makes you wonder if, you know, giving this drug in a different line might be a, a lot safer, if that's really the true toxicity profile of the drug. Yeah. Um, now, all of this has been in the advanced setting. Uh, quickly, you know, what about the adjuvant setting? Melissa, is there any role for these drugs after surgery? You know, that's a good question uh, that we haven't answered yet. Of course, we will begin answering it as you know, we're asking right now, is there a role for osimertinib um, post-chemo radiation instead of immunotherapy? Is there a role for electinib post-resection uh, in these early stage patients? And and while intuitively the answer is sure there's, there is, um, I remember that adjuvant use of these TKIs is something that needs to be explored because all of these drugs have side effects. And when you're giving it in the any drug in the adjuvant setting, the toxicity profile becomes a more significant factor in patient tolerability one, but compliance two. So I I'm a little I, I I'm interested to see what those tri what these trials will show. They're ongoing. And will take a while, no doubt, to uh, enroll because we, as standard of care, we're not sequencing patients in the early stage setting outside of academic institutions yet. But I think it is a question that we will get an answer to. Yeah, tolerability is a, an important point, and context is relevant. And you know, as you mentioned, if if someone is asymptomatic, you can only make them feel worse. You, you can't make them feel better. So that's right. That's um, right. Nandos, what about you? How would you approach a patient with, a, let's say, a resected stage 3A KRAS G12C non-small cell lung cancer? Yeah, I'm, I, might, I might actually rephrase your question a little bit and say, how would I approach a patient with resectable KRAS stage 3 KRAS G12C mutant non-small cell lung cancer? Because I'd like to highlight a new adjuvant approaches that are currently um, being explored. So there are currently three new adjuvant st st studies that use um, KRAS G12C inhibitors in the preoperative setting. So there's one study, a phase two study of new adjuvant sotoracib together with four cycles of platinum doublet chemotherapy for stage 2A to 3B. That's a study uh, that, that, that um, I, you know, I have the privilege of leading. There's also another one that uses new adjuvant sotoracib monotherapy for one cycle for stage 1B to 3A that's led by Dr. Borkhay. And then there is a third study that uses adagrasib. This is the Neocan study, either on its own or in combination with nivolumab for two cycles prior to surgical resection for stage 1B to 3A. So these are very interesting approaches. Obviously, we do not know what the outcome 
is going to be, but these are, are so I would certainly encourage patients that are eligible to participate in these clinical trials. Now, in the post-operative setting, I think it makes, um, I think it is a, a rational approach to consider targeted therapies based on the impressive results of ADORA in the EGFR mutant uh, context. And perhaps with Checkmate 186 representing a, a, a standard of care regimen with three cycles of neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy prior to surgical resection, perhaps there is an opening for uh, adjuvant clinical trials uh, of uh, KRAS-G12C inhibitor as monotherapy post-operatively in patients with uh, resected KRAS-G12C mutant tumors. But based on the available data, these are all experimental uh, approaches in the context of clinical trials. Based on available data for someone with a resected stage three, uh, I would offer adjuvant chemotherapy. And if the PDL1 uh, TPS was 1% of greater, I would also recommend adjuvant atezolizumab uh, for one year based on Empower uh, 010 results. Now, I know we're, there's so many things I want to get into, but we are running out of time. Uh, it's just such a treat to talk about a topic with two of the experts that are really moving these advances forward. Um, let me just thank both of you for joining this podcast, for being generous with your time, and of course, for your previous and ongoing efforts in advancing this field. Uh, from MD Anderson, Dr. Ferdinando Scalitas. Goodbye. And from Sarah Cannon, Dr. Melissa Johnson. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website, IASLC.org, under Newsroom. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 